we proclaim you at the centre of all that we're about this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus' disciples were busy arguing uh, amongst one another. And he said to them, you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. I don't know about you this morning. I, I, I feel like I'm getting really soppy in my more senior years. Um, I felt really moved by what Lizzie shared with us. Did you? I, I just really have a sense this morning that God has spoken to us. Oh, dear. Powerfully through the lips of an eight-year-old. I'm almost tempted not to bother saying anything more. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, that'd be great. We've been spoken to this morning by an eight-year-old. God, by his spirit, has, has really moved amongst us and challenged us, I think, to be like an eight-year-old, to be like Lizzie in our faith, to approach our faith with a childlike um, naivety, perhaps, sometimes, to come like a child would come, not wanting to be the greatest, but actually just being the person that God has made us to be. And we, this morning, are going to journey towards communion. I just really sense God would say to you today, just Come in as the person that you are. Don't come pretending you're somebody that you're not. Come even with your brokenness. Come with your shame. Come with your brokenness this morning. Why? Because Jesus loves to do something about that stuff. And you'll even encounter him as we come to the table. Three people I'd love for us to to pray for at the moment. The first is Kay. She's on annual leave this week. Please do uh, be thinking of her in her time off. Um, Please be praying for Grace, little Grace. Um, those Those of you who have journeyed with us as a church... Uh, since last August, we know she was diagnosed with a really aggressive tumour. She was two, year old, two years old at the time. Uh, it's about to celebrate her third birthday, and today she's had the last um, chemo treatment um, in the cycle. And we're praying it's going to be the last chemo treatment that she needs to have. Um, let's continue to pray for Grace. I pray that particularly because after she's had her chemo, she ends up really ill for a couple of weeks. So let's pray for her as a church family. And then the third person, and this is by way of saying thank you to you. Thank you to everyone who's offered hospitality uh, to Steph, to Steph Hall, who's watching now um, online. She's been so blessed uh, by receiving the meals that people have prepared for her as she recovers from her back surgery. So please pray for Kay, for Grace, and for Steph. Uh, That would be fantastic. Well, my world is organized around food. Uh, I don't know if yours is. I set my diary by food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and all the snacks that happen in between. But if your world is anything like me, I've forgotten what I've eaten almost as soon as I've eaten what I've eaten. Uh, Think for a minute, what did you have for lunch yesterday? I bet half of us haven't got a clue. Uh, You simply won't be able to remember. And yet there are meals from my life that I can remember that I ate 20 years ago. Why is it I can remember what I ate 20 years ago but can't recall what I had for lunch uh, yesterday? Well, more often than not, of course, the the meals we remember from decades ago, we remember them not so much because of what we ate, but because of the company that we were in or the occasion that we were uh, enjoying or celebrating in that uh, particular moment. Of course, some of us, and let me just get this off my chest, we remember the meals we ate by taking photographs. Please stop taking photographs of your food. Um, It's completely unnecessary. Uh, Anyway, I've said that. It wasn't in our text for today, but I said it. There are some meals that we remember normally because of the company that we were in. I guess you probably do what I do. Whenever we have people around for dinner, we learn lots of really interesting uh, things about them. Uh, After they've gone, we have a post-mortem. Do you do this in your house? 
Yeah, don't pretend you don't do it. Why did they say that? Why did they eat like that? Did you see how he was holding his fork? That's the kind of thing that happens in our house. Whenever we invite somebody round, we learn something about our guests. But the reverse is also true as well, isn't it? Every time somebody comes to our house, they learn about us and all the quirky habits that perhaps we have as hosts. Maybe on the way home, you have a post-mortem about the host of the meal uh, that you've been to. And maybe that's been true throughout history. As you wind the clock back, um, hosts have always been trying to demonstrate who they are or use a meal to reveal something about themselves. You think about the emperors who would have existed in the time of Jesus. They would have held these extravagant banquets, some of which would last for weeks on end. Why? So that they could demonstrate how powerful they were and how important they were. Some of the feasts that were happening around the time of Jesus with the emperors, they'd be eating extravagant foods and exotic foods like flamingo feet. When did you last try flamingo feet? Peacock brains apparently are delicious, and even the tongues of nightingales would be served. Well, what's the host trying to say by serving that kind of a meal? He's trying to say to you, I am strong, and you are nothing but a mere minion. These are the things I eat. Well, let's jump forward a bit in history. You think to the 18th century, a period that was characterized by refined dining experience. Catherine the Great, uh, the Empress of Russia, she would host banquets that literally became the talk of the whole of Europe. Why did she host these meals? Because she wanted to demonstrate her power and her influence. She would invite dignitaries and other important people to come, and these would be occasions when she would solidify allegiances with these individuals. That's what she was trying to achieve as the host. What was she trying to prove to the people that came? If you eat with me, you'll discover that my wealth and my importance can buy your solidarity. But of course, not all meals are about posing and about power. They can, of course, be occasions where other much more important things are achieved. Think back to 1914, the Christmas Day truce that happened in World War I. We remember that occasion for a football match that happened, but actually, that occasion was a meal. People put down their weapons, these soldiers who were yearning for normalcy in, 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 on Christmas Day, put down their weapons and they gathered together and they had a meal and they sang carols and then they had the famous football match. This extraordinary event in the history of our world reminds us, that, uh, reminds us of the power that there can be in food to bring people together even during the most trying of circumstances. And I wonder for you today, is there an occasion or a situation in your life where maybe you find yourself in conflict with somebody else? Can I commend to you inviting them for a meal? Can I commend to you sitting down with that individual as a first step towards reconciliation? There is power, not in the food, but in the gathering and in the occasion. Well, undeniably, the the most famous meal of all time and the most celebrated meal of all time that's captivated the hearts and the minds of millions, billions of people throughout history is the Last Supper, the meal that we're going to remember together as we come around the communion table today. It was the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in those final hours before he knew the next day he'd be heading towards crucifixion. This was one relatively short moment in history that invites us to reflect on the nature of our faith, but also invites us into the transformative power of God's grace. That's what this meal achieves. 
Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to read the text of uh, this particular occasion where Jesus is eating, drinking, and he's talking uh, with his disciples. Luke chapter 22. So in the story um, so far, uh, Judas has just agreed to betray uh, Jesus, uh, and Satan has entered into him, it says in verse 3. The disciples go on and follow the instructions of Jesus to make preparations for the Passover meal. And then, as we've just heard, this argument happens, and then Jesus goes on to predict uh, the denial of Peter. Here's the bit in the middle. When the hour came, Jesus, verse 14, Jesus and his disciples were reclining at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Words that will be familiar for us. And then Jesus goes on, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on this table. The son of man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So Jesus, his disciples, they're gathered there around a meal table. Like any other meal table, they're ready to celebrate this Passover meal, which was a sacred tradition in Jewish um, history, commemorating God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, if you want to read all about that story. And Jesus and his disciples, this, this event would have been really familiar to them. Year on year upon year, alone or together, Many times before they would have gathered, but on this occasion, more than any other occasion previously, this year would be etched on their memories for the rest of their lives. As they sit around the table, Jesus does something which is really, really unexpected. In fact, it's absolutely shocking. He says, you've no idea how much I look forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. Do you know, it's the last one I'm going to eat until we eat it together in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus takes some bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body given for you. Eat this bread in memory of me. He then takes a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood, my blood poured out for you. Now, we don't always get this, I think, when we read the text, but this is a moment of pure confusion. The NIV doesn't capture it, but what the disciples said in this moment was, what? This moment would have come as an absolute curveball for the disciples. Can you imagine for a moment how confused they would have been? Jesus turns this feast of commemoration into a feast of absolute confusion. Confusion is permeating the air as they're starting to wrestle with fear and uncertainty about what Jesus has just said. Jesus grabbing hold of the bread and breaking it, Jesus picking up the wine and saying what he said would have absolutely baffled them. Perhaps in their confusion, maybe their confusion mirrors some of the wrestles that some of us have when the things of our faith simply don't make sense to us. They thought they were gathering to do what they did every single year. Now, for the less dev devout Jews among uh, these disciples, 
this event, this commemoration that they did every single year was just a box-ticking exercise, remembering how God had rescued them from the land of slavery. And you know, there's a risk, isn't there, for us. When we come to this communion table, it's nothing more than a box-ticking exercise. We'd normally do this on the first Sunday of the month, but we moved it because of church camp. There's a temptation to come and say, good, we've ticked the box until we do it again in August. But for the really devout Jews, this occasion was deeply significant. It was an annual celebration commemorating a tangible connection, a tangible link back to their history and to their ancestors. And in the mix of that, Jesus does the absolute unexpected. He breaks into their tradition and he smashes up their boxes of convention and their religious rituals. He takes a moment of massive historic religious significance for every single Jew. And what does he do? He makes it all about himself. This is shocking. Through this one meal, through this last supper... Jesus transforms an historical ritual into a present-day transformative reality, which is not just one meal in one moment in history, but it's a meal that still has the power to shape our lives today. What took place in that upper room of that undisclosed stranger's house went far beyond the simple commemoration of an act that God did way back in history in Egypt. You see, in this moment, Jesus is infusing this meal with deep spiritual significance. He's transforming it to become a really powerful symbol of his presence and a symbol that communicates his love that still impacts us to this day. Jesus was creating a a sacrament. It's not words that we often use, especially in the life of Baptist churches, but he was creating a sacrament, a visible symbol of the reality of God and a means for humanity to experience the grace of God. That's what you're invited to today. A visible symbol of the reality of God and a means for you and I to experience the grace of God today. In this one significant moment, Jesus is revealing the purpose for his coming, a purpose that the very next day would be fulfilled through his death on the cross. He was establishing something new that had really obvious continuity with their past, but this was no longer based on the sacrifice of animals, but instead it was going to be based on his own sacrifice. Like the bread, Jesus said, my body is going to be broken. Like this wine, Jesus said, my blood is going to be shed for you. Through this ultimate act of love and grace of Jesus dying on the cross, humanity is about to find redemption and Forgiveness, the broken relationship with God is about to be restored. Now, the most famous meal of all time has been depicted in what's become perhaps one of the most famous paintings of all time by Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper. I want you to imagine for just a moment, and the creatives amongst us are going to love this, the non creatives are going to hate it, okay? So, but just go with it. I'm, I'm the non creative. But imagine for a moment that you are the painter of a painting, which is trying to depict this Last Supper moment. You've got a blank canvas. It's just white before you. I wonder what would you paint and how would you paint this scene? You see, I guess what you would discover quite quickly, which I'm guessing Leonardo da Vinci discovered, is actually traditional pigments and paints are thoroughly inadequate to capture a moment like this. 
Maybe it would be better and easier for you if you could have lots of different pots lined up that were actually a pot of love, a a pot of sacrifice, a, a pot of eternal significance, a pot of grace. What if those were your elements? What if those were the things that you could paint with? As you lay down your paints, those elements, every single stroke would masterfully blend together and you would discover grace and you would discover redemption on your canvas. You see, that's the heart of what's going on in this now famous meal. Jesus is speaking about grace and he's talking about redemption. You see, the reason the Last Supper is now the most famous and the most remembered meal in the whole of history is because the Last Supper is not merely an historical event, but in fact, it's a glimpse into the very heart of God. It's my prayer for us today. As we come to this table, we'll get a glimpse into the very heart of God for us today, for us personally. Maybe as you put down the first stroke of your painting, it would represent Jesus's posture at the table as you paint. And what you'll notice in your painting is that Jesus isn't some distant ruler, but in fact, he's a humble servant. He's clothed in a towel. He's ready to wash his disciples' feet. These very same disciples that he knew were going to betray him and deny him and get this, yet Jesus still washes their feet. Put yourself at that meal table for a moment. If my disciples were behaving like that, I would tip over the table and I would walk out the door, and yet Jesus washes their feet. That's the grace of God found in a simple meal, isn't it? There's kindness in his majesty. In this profound act of humility, Jesus is demonstrating the essence of his mission here on earth. He's come to serve, he's come to save, and he's come to do it with love, and he's come to do it with grace. You continue to paint. The second stroke of your painting highlights the significance of the bread and the wine that was laid out before them, the the symbols of the body and of the blood. And as the disciples are partaking in this meal, Jesus is saying to them, look, remember me. In fact, more than that, would you come into a deep communion with me, a communion that's going to transcend space and time? Jesus taking these simple elements was creating a new covenant, a new promise, a new way of God and people relating to one another, which was a covenant of grace, an unbreakable covenant of grace and of forgiveness that in a few days would be sealed by his death on the cross. That's the grace of God, isn't it? Demonstrated in a simple meal, that he's the God of holiness and yet he welcomes souls like me. Would that be your experience as you come to the table today, that you're welcomed? And then maybe as you continue to paint, you start to give your attention to the disciples. Oh, these are tricky people to paint, aren't they? Because they're so diverse and they're such a a ragbag bunch. But in fact, as you paint each of the disciples, what you discover is you're just reflecting the diversity of humanity. You're reflecting the complexities of faith and what it means to live as broken human beings. Do you know, it's so intriguing to me, isn't it? You know, often when we come to the table, we, we talk about our unity as we gather around the communion table. And yet, what do the disciples do in response to Jesus initiating this incredible feast that's before us? Well, they have a good old-fashioned argument. What's that all about? Verse 24, if we were to read on, says, A dispute rose amongst them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. They're arguing. They're bickering. What does Jesus do in response? Well, he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't walk away from them, but he gently challenges with those words that Lizzie shared with us, their self-serving natures. That's the grace of God found 
in a simple meal that he offers us friendship instead of disgrace. He extends his grace, his love to them, offering them the opportunity to repent and to be restored. So you've painted Peter. He's full of zeal, but he's vulnerable to doubt. I can identify with Peter today. I wonder if you can. You've painted John. He's the one laying on Jesus' chest. He's in that intimate connection, but he was somebody who followed God imperfectly. I can identify with John. I long to know Jesus more deeply, and yet I discover every single day there's still so much more of Jesus to be known by me. And then there's Judas, the somber stroke of the paintbrush, the man whose betrayal actually is the elephant in the room. It's cast a shadow over this gathering, and yet I have to say I can relate to Judas. Sometimes I'm not always faithful. I'm kind of hoping I'm in good company today. And yet in the midst of this diverse, confusing blend of incredible contradiction, it seems, given the moment, Jesus remains the focal point. Jesus be the center of this painting, because actually if Jesus is not at the center of this gathering, then there is no eternal hope and there's no eternal significance to all that he did. So for a moment, put yourself in the meal. Let's gather around the table. I wonder which one of these disciples most represents you today in your walk with Christ. Choose which disciple is you. And then in a moment in your imagination, look into the eyes of Jesus and I wonder what you see. What you'll see is the eyes of Jesus are filled with love and compassion. What you'll discover is that Jesus understands what it is to walk the journey of faith and he knows that sometimes it's not easy and sometimes it's a complicated one. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, but he still looks at him with eyes of love. Jesus knew that Judas was going to go on to betray him, but he still looks at him with eyes of compassion. Jesus knew that all the disciples in their fear would scatter as their worlds fell apart, and yet Jesus still chooses to embrace them. It's what he offers us today as we come to the table. He offers you his embrace. Jesus still extends his lavish grace and his love towards these disciples. That's what he wants to lavish on you today, his grace and his love. Jesus still offers them his forgiveness. And that's what we can receive today as we come to the table. That's my God. That's my Savior. That's my King. The one who loves lavishly. And the one who forgives unconditionally when we'll only trust him as Lord and Savior. Now, as we come to this table today, Jesus understands our brokenness. He understands all the doubts that we journey with today. He understands our struggles and yet still he invites us into that new covenant relationship. The promise that God will forgive the sins of any who will come to him. As we come to this meal table today, Jesus invites us to remember him. As we come to this meal table today, Jesus invites us to embrace his sacrifice for the first time or again. 
Jesus invites us today to be transformed by his love. You know, if you want to see how much Jesus loves you today, then put yourself in the shoes of Peter. Perhaps he's the easiest one to relate to. Jesus said to him, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter comes back and says, I won't. I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to let you down, Jesus. And then his faith wavers and he succumbs to his fear. But even in Peter's moment of despair, there's a glimmer of hope. You see, his story reminds us that Jesus sees beyond our weakness and he sees beyond our failings. Just as Jesus restored Peter after his denial, he offers forgiveness and he offers redemption to us when we stumble. I want to finish with this because I, I really feel a weight around this sentence that I feel some of us need to hear today and I think I need to hear it today as well. Our confusion and our doubt do not define us. Would you know that today? Your confusion and your doubt do not define you. Instead, they're an opportunity for you to come today, recognizing that confusion and that doubt, to grow and to be renewed in your relationship with Christ. If you're doubting, if you're struggling... If you've let Jesus down, if you live the Christian life imperfectly, then come to the table today and have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What an invitation. This is not some dead act. This is not some historic box-ticking exercise we engage in today. It's an opportunity to come afresh and receive the grace of Jesus, the love of Christ and to experience his transformative power. I want to invite our musicians to come. We're going to sing a song over I say we're, mostly they. Uh, we're going to sing a song over you. And it's a song that echoes a few of the words that I've shared with us this morning. It's a song that reminds us that as we come, Jesus can bring change and he can bring transformation. It's a song that reminds us that even though he was the name above every other name, that he was God in human form, the most holy of holies. He offers us friendship instead of disgrace. Even though he's the God of holiness, he welcomes a soul like me. our God. Oh, sacred, oh, sacred King. King.